This is uh, crazy. I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud. Debbie Millman is on the podcast, and uh, I want to first and foremost say, Debbie, thank you for being on, and uh, you are the inspiration for me doing this podcast. I remember I went, I went on Amazon one night and like ordered a microphone, and I wrote you this whole big letter, which was like entirely too long, but uh, you were really my inspiration for this, and, and Design Matters, and, and all the work that you've done has really inspired me to do this, so it will be a shell of a podcast compared to yours, but... Oh, Rob, thank you. I'm honored and delighted and thrilled and proud to be here. Thank you, thank you. All right, so for the past 20 years, Debbie Millman has been the president uh, of Sterling Brands. Um, you are also the founder and the host of my favorite podcast, Design Matters. Um, you have several visual essays. Um, you are the chair with Stephen Heller at SVA which um, Stephen Heller's the man. He's another one of my uh, my mentors. He's he's so great. Yeah, well, um, let me let me just make make sure that it's clear that I'm the co-founder and chair of the Masters in Branding program. Masters in Branding not, program. Not the whole school. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be. <laughs> it's not good. It's not if, it's when. Oh, yeah. You got a lot going on there, so. Um, but you are kind of known as somebody who knows a whole lot about branding and, and art and uh, design. But when did you first discover your um, love for branding? I, I read recently that um, when your parents g gave you a, a box and you kind of had an unexpected surprise. What, what was that about? Well, I came across a drawing that I had done when I was about eight years old. And um, it was sort of the typical drawing that you'd see a kid do. It was a street scene. I'm a native New Yorker. It was a street scene in New York City. And um, there was a bus going by and a taxi. And in the background, you saw different stores that had labels on them, dry cleaners, <laughs> bank. The taxi had the word taxi on it. Oh, wow. And then there's this delivery truck in the middle of the street. And it says potato chips. But above potato chips, it says Lay's, but not just Lay's, the word, it's Lay's, the logo. Oh, wow. So at eight years <laughs> old, I was already drawing logos, yeah. and that stopped me in my tracks and made me feel like my whole life was predetermined. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you uh, sticking to your guns was the right decision, for sure. I, re I read recently in an article... Um, that you graduated college in uh, 1983. I, I doubt that. I'm sure it was uh, probably in the 2000s there. But um, it's, I'm going to read the quote here. It says, My first 10 years after college were experiments in rejection and despair. I knew that I wanted to do something special, but frankly, I didn't have the guts to do anything special. When I graduated, I didn't feel confident, optimistic enough, or hopeful enough to be, believe that I could get what I really wanted. I wasn't living the, what I would consider my highest self, in fact, I was probably living my most fearful self. How did you go from being someone like that and being so unsure to, to where you are now? And, uh, you know, you exude confidence. I mean, whenever I hear like your, your um, podcast, you always seem very confident. And I was kind of surprised when I read that and kind of the turmoil that you faced in those first 10 years. So how, how did you transform to who you, the person you are today? Therapy. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of therapy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't have um, a lot of guidance as I was growing up. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My sole criteria for choosing the college that I went to 
was, um, aside from being a state school, which it had to be because that was the only thing I could afford, um, my criteria for going was that my best friend Tammy was going. So I, I have a degree in English literature and a minor in Russian literature, and I often joke that I essentially have a degree in reading. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So, so I didn't really have any, any sense of what I wanted and what I could be. And frankly, it took about 10 years just to get on a path of, of something that I was good at. I then had to spend another 10 years getting really good at it right. before I could make any kind of difference doing it. Um, and so now, I, I guess this September, it'll be 33 years since I graduated college. And I would say more than half of that was filled with enormous struggle and self-doubt. Were there people- I mean, I still have self-doubt. Yeah. I still have self-doubt, but there are certain things. I actually think that what confidence is is just a repetitive um, success at something. That right. you know if you've done it before, you could do it again. And that gives you confidence. And because I've done a number of successful branding programs, I know that I could do it again um, when asked. I know what it takes. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I also read to you about um, that Stephen Heller called you while you were at lunch one day. And you guys decided to embark on the Masters in Branding program. Which is, uh, and you said that your food almost fell out of your mouth. Is that is that right? <laughs> uh, well, I I I still can't believe that he. I mean, Steve is my fairy godfather. I, my life wouldn't be the life that I have if it weren't for Stephen Heller. He recommended me for my first book deal. He recommended me for the Masters in Branding program. Two really really significant things in my life that are that make my life what it is in a lot of ways. He's also um, been generous enough to come on my uh, podcast show every year since its inception. And last year, I believe last year, one of our episodes, one of my episodes with Steve went viral. And I think it had over a million downloads, just his, his, his show. Okay. So, so I am a student at Rampo college. I'm graduating in May. And uh, one of my professors there who was very influential to me, her name is Bonnie Blake. She's a huge fan of yours, by the way. She couldn't believe, she was like so excited when I told her I was gonna get to interview you. Hi, um, Bonnie. Oh, that's gonna make her day. Um, but she, she told me uh, about a, a year ago um, to get involved in AIGA. And I kind of was hesitant to do it. And then um, over time, uh, I started hearing more and more about it, and I figured, you know what, what the heck, let me try it. And the first uh, event that I went to was the AIGA Christmas party. Oh, that's where we met. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, so but when I went there, um, I was going to go with my girlfriend, who's now fiancé, Sammy. And uh, Thank you very much. Uh, and she's awesome. Um, she told me, though, to... Uh, that, that I should go and uh, she was she was going to come with me but she, she said you know what am I going to do this is be no one to talk to I should go by myself so it was kind of daunting to go into Manhattan by myself to a Christmas party where everyone probably knows each other and um, and so so I went there and for the first like 45 minutes nobody talked to me <laughs> at all like everyone was kind of very clicky and it was kind of quiet and uh, and it seemed like a little bit clicky at first 
And then as the night went on and the drinks started pouring, people eventually started t- talking more. Um, but I, re- I remember there was, a, there was a moment where I thought to myself, like, maybe I should go home. And, you know, they said that there's a sense of community. I don't really feel that. But then I kind of just made it the point to start introducing myself to people. And um, I met, you know, one after the other amazing people. There was such a sense of community. Um, there was one guy in particular that I talked to, um, and he kind of introduced himself to me and uh, told me a little bit about AIGA. And the next thing you know, I, I loved it. And I loved that sense of community. And uh, this guy had a great beard, by the way. And uh, I later... It was? I, I later found out, actually from your Twitter feed, that it was Tobias uh, Van yeah, I couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what? Like, Yeah. And I went through a phase where I uh, tried like copying everything that he did. I was like, I, I got to be my own person. He's so cool, though. I love him. He's so cool. I was in Hong Kong with him, yeah. and we were judging and speaking at the Hong Kong Design Association. Yeah. And it was so much fun hanging out with him. He's yeah. such an interesting, smart, funny, kind person. Yeah. And it, it was weird because when I, when I talked to him um, – he, he kind of, at first was a little bit standoffish, but then very quickly kind of like opened up to me. I, I think he thought I like wanted something from him, but then like I, I, I must have seemed so weird going up to him. Like, I don't know anyone here, like, and, and it's, but he's the man, so. Um, cool. And at the end of and that. I'm so brave of you for doing that. Yeah. I did that recently. I went to an event where I knew nobody and I was terrified. I walked in and was sort of cowering in the corner like a wallflower until I got the courage to just go up to some people and start chatting. But yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. And I remember uh, she, my fiance said to me, she's like, well, maybe if you go there, you'll meet that, that Debbie girl that you always talk about. And, <laughs> and uh, it was funny because like right at the moment when, um, when I finally was like getting like a group of friends and everything was going great and I was taking pictures and then uh, I actually have the picture here. It's still on my, on my refrigerator. That's, that's oh, how me, great. it's you, and uh, my friend Louie, I'm still friends with him, so for anybody who's on the fence about joining AIGA, please do, and they take you in with, uh, with open arms, so. Yes, absolutely. And you were the president of the AIGA for a while there, right? I was, from 2009 until 2011. What was that like? Oh my God, it was really <laughs> hard. <laughs> it seems like a tough job. It is a tough job. You know, the, the membership is so diverse. There's such a range of people, both age, discipline, part of the world, right. that it's very hard to make people happy, all the people happy all the time. And I'm the kind of person that will do almost anything I can to make sure that everybody is happy all the time, as difficult as that may be and as right. as mm, as much head banging <laughs> against the wall as, as possible. Yeah. Um, but it was just impossible to do that. And so I learned the hard way that you just can't make everybody happy all the time. The issue that I had with being president is that we're in this time of great, I mean, we're always in a time of great change, but I think even more from a technological point of view. And the very things that thrilled and, and delighted and excited some people were the very things that outraged others. Right. And that was hard for me. Um, but the things that I am really proud of is how much we grew our social media outreach. Um, when I became president, I think we had like 30,000 followers on Twitter and I was really, really active in broadening our reach and talking to people that way and engaging conversations in a way that made people feel included. 
So, so that was one thing that I was very, very active in doing. I also made it my business to visit um, just about every chapter within AIGA. When I was president, I think there were about 60. Um, and I, I did visit them all. There are newer ones now that I haven't visited. Right. So um, I still have yet to go to those. But <laughs> I, I really was looking to create a spirit of inclusivity, a spirit of of authenticity in the way that we communicate. That was right. really, really important to me. Right. Um, and s- same thing with, with SVA, you are, you are also you know, a huge integral part there. Um, what, what have you learned in terms of, in terms of like, uh, you know, teaching or being president or ca- kind of trying to appease everyone? I mean, what, what are most people looking for in a successful design community? To be included, right. to be seen, to be heard, to make a difference, to contribute, to feel like they have purpose. And when I first, first, first started out in AIGA, I had the same feeling that you had in that first 45 minutes <laughs> of being at the party. Alone. Oh, it feels, it feels like I'm not necessary. And ultimately, you do have to forge your own path. But it, And it is important to ask those questions or to say hello first or to put your hand out first. Right. Um, but it was hard for me. It was really hard for me. I, I don't know that um, I would want anybody to go through what I went through in my first experiences with AIJ because I was rejected quite a lot. And yeah, I read that. I was kind of like shocked to find that out. And and it was really really hard to continue to come back after the second or third rejection. But right. ultimately, um, Rick Raffay, the then executive director of AIJ. It really encouraged me and inspired me to to stay involved and to to continue to try to make a difference. And ultimately, I was able to do that. But it was challenging. I, and right. I think anything that is really worthwhile is challenging. I, I part of what has kept me going was the notion that I didn't expect things to happen that quickly. Right. And. I, I worry now that we live in a day and age that I, I call a 140-character culture where we expect everything to be said, done, completed, and communicated in, in an instant. Right. And I think that anything worthwhile takes a long time. And we've lost some of our resilience in, in our patience by wanting things so quickly, by having such a sense of or a need for immediate gratification. Right. And, and uh, I've, I've heard you talk about it before and also about Generation X and it kind of being called Generation D. Um, and and I, I relate to that so much because I, I, I think more than a lot of my um, friends and, and peers try and be cognizant of, you know, how, how much I, I hold myself to social media and, and people like you, yourself. And, uh, but it's tough, though. You know what I mean? It's, t- it's tough for because I, just, I just turned 25 uh, on April 4th. And um, thank you, thank you. But but you know it it, it is kind of tough because it, it's hard to to know where you stand when um, you know there's all these this the sense of community on Twitter and and you can see everyone's website and do everything and and I try my hardest not not to 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 feel down about on myself about it but sometimes it just happens and I'm a very and I'm a very positive person so I could very, you know imagine. For somebody who who is uh, um, you know has has a low self esteem or hasn't quite found their place in the design world yet, in the, or in the world in general, 
Um, but but it is kind of strange to, um, for for you know, people are wondering why they're not getting a job at Pentagram and they've been out of college for like a month. You know, you know what I mean? But they think they see these people and like you know Tobias and and although they're doing great things and they're they're very young, I think that that they are the exception. And uh, it's kind of it, it kind it's kind of tough to to think that way though because you want what what's best, but at the same time. I feel like our generation is not realistic about how, how long things take. I know that's kind of what you said, but I totally Yeah, no, agree. I agree. And and there aren't very many Tobiases or Jessica Hishes or Jessica Walshes. There aren't. Right. And one of the things, you talked about Generation D, what D stands for is depressed. Right. And the reason that people are feeling depressed is because we live in a day and age now where everything is measured. How many friends do you have? How many likes do you have? People are self-positioning on these websites, on these um, social media sites to present the person that they want other people to think that they are. Right. And so we're only seeing a highly curated sense of self and, mm -hmm. and what people want to put out there. And so what, what that does is essentially whitewashes a life. Right. And people look at these lives and see only what the person wants you to put right. wants to put out there wants you to see right. and you have very very diluted view of what is real right. and and then as a result we we copy that we do the same thing and so what we're seeing are really edited lives right. and for those of us that do go through hard times or struggle or get depressed or have writer's block or designer's block or whatever it is right very difficult to to see a life that is at a distance that looks to be perfect yeah. and of course you're comparing yourselves we're we're humans where the species in and of itself is highly competitive it's survival of the fittest and yeah. if we see somebody fitter than we are it it gives us a sense of needing to be better and it's, it's especially difficult in a day and age where this is applauded. This is this is something that is seen as right. enviable. The more, why do we need to know how many friends a person has? Why do we need to know how many people like a photograph or how many people are um, following you on a on a particular site? How many views something has? It's only to give us credence, confidence that other people think it's good or worthwhile. And so the fact that everything is measured, it's no surprise now that you can buy Twitter followers, you could buy Instagram likes. Right. And, and so the whole thing becomes just this giant um, subterfuge. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all just a, a, it's, it's a Trojan horse, essentially. Right. And Absolutely. so I think we have to be really, really careful about how we assign meaning and, and how we compare ourselves to others because ultimately if we feel like we have to compare to others, there's an innate sense of not being good enough to begin with. Right. And, and that's what also needs to be looked at, I think. I think for entry-level designers, the, the most important aspect to be able to convey is that you are going to provide a benefit to mm. your employer. You're asking somebody to pay you, an entry-level person with no experience, to do something that you love in exchange for their money. Right. So <laughs> what is the benefit in doing that for the employer? Employers, for the most part, 
while they might care for their employees and feel grateful for their contribution, they are not going to just throw around money for the altruistic, for any altruistic reason. They want a return on the investment for who they are paying. And so I think that not only do you have to be likable, people want only to work around people that they like and feel inspired by. They also need to, entry-level designers need to provide some type of benefit. Are you going to work harder than anybody else? Are you going to be more eager than anybody else? Are you going to push yourself harder than you've ever pushed yourself before? What are you going to do? If, if you're starting to think as an entry-level designer about your work-life balance or your benefits or your vacation, and all of those things are important, but when you're starting your career, your main focus should be on working as hard as you can, working harder than anybody else and making a difference wherever you're working. How can you be irreplaceable? How could you make yourself irreplaceable? So you also want to be somebody that is considered what I consider to be a generator. So my former partner, Simon Williams, has often said that there are two kinds of people in the world, generators and, and drains. Generators are people that come into a room, make the room a better place just by the sheer virtue of entering into it. Their right. energy, their enthusiasm, all of these the things. The Don like, Draper. Yeah, well, uh, maybe. <laughs> a, nice, a nice Don Draper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A on kind Don day. Draper, yeah. Don Draper on his best day. Yeah. Um, and so they make a real difference. And then there are other people, and I think everybody knows somebody like this, that no matter what is happening, as good as it might be, there's always something that the person can find wrong. There's always some complaint that is made about something. Maybe it's the temperature of the room or the way the sun is coming through the window. Who knows? But people tend to suck the energy out of a room when they're like that. Yeah. And people don't want to be around people like that. So right. I think one of the most important qualities to have as an entry-level designer is to be a generator, to make the room a better place than it was before you went in. Right. That's great advice. This is awesome. It's <laughs> better than any of the, the articles I found on LinkedIn. Just that one little snippet there was really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm working on a book now, which is all about this. And one of the chapters is called Nobody Cares If You're a People Person. <laughs> You know, when people say, so right. what, what is the, what can you offer that nobody else can? Well, I'm a real people person. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody. I ride my bike in stakes. Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> table stakes. Everybody should be able to interact with other people in a positive way. Right. So to be a real people person is not a benefit. It's table stakes. You have right. to prove that you can do something or be better than anybody else that you're competing with in an entry level position. Right. Not to say that you need to be as experienced or as great as a senior designer or design director, but in, in your competition set, you want to be the best. Right. I remembered while you were saying that, uh, and it's actually right in line with what we're talking about. Um, this is what I meant to say before. Um, about I, I talked with Sean Adams about um, dealing with his students and, and having a style uh, for you know, people that are, that are um, you know, leave, leaving college and going out into the, the, the real work world. And uh, we talked about how when I first went to college and uh, in, in my freshman year, everybody seemed like they, would, they, they were, you know, trying to have their own style. You know what I mean? If you looked at that project, I would know that that's, you know, Cole's project because he always likes to use Futura with, you know, a lot of, you know, and, and right. people would kind of have the, these, it would be easy to tell. But, and I think that 
as a young designer, I went into college thinking that, well, if I had my own style, that would make me a good designer. But leaving, it, it, it's almost like whose work cannot be identified and, and, and whose work um, you know, meets the criteria of, of that client. Um, and I talked with Sean about how, um, you know, do you teach that to your students to just be like versatile and to not have a style? And I know that this is a kind of a, a topic that's been, you know, been beaten to death in, in the design talk world. But, but what is, what is better to have like your own style or to be versatile or what do you, what do you recommend? I think it really depends on the individual. I think that if, if certain designers do really, really, really well with a certain kind of style. Right. Um, Paula Cher is somebody that has a certain kind of style sometimes that's identifiable, and then other times it isn't. Right. Um, I think it really depends on the kind of work and the kind of client. Is there room for style? Right. I think that the longer you work in the discipline, the stronger your sense of what works and what doesn't right. is apparent. And that might be viewed as style. But then there are times where there's no room for a designer's voice in the messaging. The messaging needs to be as clear and clean as possible without the editorial nuance of a designer's voice. Right. Really great designers, I think, can do both, should be able to do both. So there are times when, in say, the public theater work that Paula does, where it's one absolutely... One of my favorite campaigns like, ever, I love it. For, for her voice and her style to be apparent. But then if you look at other work that she's done for um, there's a museum in Philadelphia that she's done a lot of work with yeah. and you can also see that there's a pollenness to it but that is very very different than the work for the public so right. then it becomes a question of again nuance whereas there's other work that she's done say for um, Weight Watchers or um, the new school where it isn't immediately apparent that it's Paula's hand. Right. And so I think she, she can really exceptionally do both. Right. Um, and I think the greatest designers in the world can do both. There were times where you could absolutely see the hand of Massimo Vignelli and other times where maybe it was Massimo because of the typefaces right. and the color palette, but Helvetica. maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Paula's work. It's amazing. Another person who is who who you sometimes see his hand and wit and know that it's Michael, and then other times, wow, that was Michael Beirut. That's amazing. So versatile. Yeah. So I think that it really it really depends on the project and and the kind of designer. Yeah, Michael Michael's book How to is actually holding up my laptop right now. That and I have a Stephen Heller book underneath here. It's like for good luck, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, then somebody like Marion Banshees, you know, she's an illustrator and a, and a typographer where her style is very much part of what you get when you hire her. Right. And so I think that's, that's an area where there's a specific, I, I, I think it's beyond style. It's almost like the DNA of her work. Right. And that, and that is, is embedded in everything that she does. Right. 
I watched a great talk uh, yesterday with uh, with Brian Collins, and and he was kind of talking about how design. Uh, you know, he was kind of showed these um, designs from San Francisco, famous designers from San Francisco, and and how colorful and, and how playful they were, and and you know, design was really kind of booming at that time. But now a lot of the solutions that companies are using are are, are very safe and. Not safe in terms, but, you know, very similar. It's kind of, you know, there's not a lot of room to, for, for misinterpretation. Do you think that um, that there needs to be kind of like a renaissance of, 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 you know, color and unexpected solutions? Because I see it a lot. Like, you know, I was at the mall the other day and, and they all, a lot of the, a lot of brands look very similar. And, and as somebody who is, you know, a master in branding, uh, what's your take on all that? Well, I think that going into a mall or going into an airport these days is an exercise in um, a, a view of the world that's homogenous. Right. You see, you go into any mall in the United States and there's a Starbucks and uh, a Zales and a Macy's and an Old Navy and maybe a Sears. Right. It's, it's sad that there's this sense of sameness in these collections of brands and environments. We're losing a lot of the inherent local culture that is not only apparent in the different cities and towns in the United States, but globally. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of the drawbacks of having global brands is that there tends to be this desire to look the same way all over the world. And be the same brand to everyone. Um, So uh, I I find it to be really sad. But on the other hand, I think that if you look at the number of, say, farmers markets that are popping up all over the world, especially in the United States, there are more and more and more of them. And that's where you start to see some of the local flavor coming back um, with more localized brands and packaging. Um, but I, I think as we are living in a more global um, community with very little um, time necessary to communicate to the different parts of the world, you could get a message out instantly now. It's right. not a surprise that if you can communicate instantly that everything that you communicate should be fairly consistent. Yeah. And that's why you see so many of the brands look, looking the same. Yeah, that's very, that's very interesting. Um, to switch gears here a little bit, um, I, I uh, getting to design matters. Um, I yesterday I listened to the Amanda Effing Palmer uh, episode. That was what epic. an episode! I, I almost started. I like literally almost had to pull over to the side of the. When she was talking about that thing about um, the street performers and and uh, people just wanting to feel a connection. Now I was like, oh my god! I haven't even finished yet, so no spoilers for the end. I still have like 20 okay. minutes left. Yeah, it's, it's my, my longest podcast. I've done I was nearly about to say, very long. Podcasts, an hour and 20 minutes. And that was edited. We spoke for nearly two and a half hours. Oh my God. That was great. I, I was not really familiar with her uh, before that. Um, but yeah, who are some of the, the people that have kind of been, I mean, you know, obviously uh, interviewing Massimo Vignelli and, and uh, all, all the great icons you've interviewed over, over the years. But were there any other like unexpected guests who you were just expecting to kind of be a run of the mill interview and it? kind of change your life? or um, Well, I don't ever expect anything to be a run-of-the-mill episode, mostly because I only ask people that I really want to talk to. Right. Um, I am really, really interested in the arc of a person's life 
the show has become less about design per se mm -hmm. and more about how people design their lives, the trajectory and right. the arc of a person's life. I find that endlessly fascinating. So as long as I've done my research, which I take, as you know, very seriously, mm -hmm. there's a, always a lot to talk about with the person because right. there's their whole life that's yeah. happened before <laughs> we get to meet and, yeah. and talk. And, and there's a lot to, to be able to uncover. Um, I've had interviews that I felt were better than I expected them to be or not as good as I hoped they would be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that my favorite episode, people always ask me, what was your favorite episode of Design Matters? And I think my favorite episode was probably with Chris Ware. Mm -hmm. um, I did it about two years ago. Chip Kidd introduced me to, to Chris. They're very good friends. Um, Chris is very reserved. He's very quiet. He's very intense. And he really opened up in a way that I didn't expect. And I think we had one of my most favorite conversations. I'm madly in love with his work. I'd spent weeks immersed in everything that I could get my hands on of his. Right. And so we came to the interview with me um, frothing with <laughs> questions. <laughs> I mean, I just had so many things that I wanted to know. And yeah. part of what I like to accomplish, if that's the right word to use, I'm not entirely sure it is, <laughs> but at the end of an interview is is a sense of really knowing who I've spoken to. Like, is there a sense of knowing this person's soul? And have I been able to share that magnificence with my listeners and really bring out the best in someone? It's about right. celebrating who they are and why they are and how they become who they are in the world. And and that's what I really like to do most with Design Matters. And I think that you do that, um, not even just saying this to appease you, I really genuinely do think that you um, you do that. And, and that's one of the things that I like most about your show is, is, is that it kind of goes from talking about career and the next thing you know, they're talking about, you know, these, these pivotal moments in life. And um, I, I think that that's, that's almost what I like more about about your show is, uh, you know, obviously I always like hearing from my favorite designers and that's so cool to, uh, to kind of hear these little tidbits about their life. But some of the most rewarding podcasts that I've listened to of yours, they've, they've been, you like to ask personal questions too. It's, it's kind of, Oh yeah. <laughs> what, what else is there? That's, what else that's is true. there? Everything else you can find out on LinkedIn, you know, you don't need yeah. me to ask the questions. I'm really interested in the reason a person is who they are. I, I find that just endlessly fascinating. Why does somebody become the person that they are? How does that happen? How do you make the choices to be who you are? Mm -hmm. And and I I just love finding those answers out. Yeah. Just to that to that point though, I, I should ask because while while I have you on here, uh, when when you do make questions, first of all. There, sometimes you find things about people like is there like a is there, is there like a dark web or something that you go to where you like where you find these things because sometimes like I don't I know it's great it's great I think I've become good at researching I just keep looking I take I, I first of all it's so much fun to give yourself permission to, to just surf <laughs> yeah so you read one thing and there's always a link to something else and something else and something else and before you know it you're like reading the story of Genesis yeah, <laughs> yeah. back to the beginning. And, and I love that. Imagine giving yourself permission to just read whatever you want to read, 
without a sense of it having a time limit or an expiration date. And that's what I do when I research. It's just open-ended. And I want to read everything. And so even the most, especially the most obscure things, give you the most interesting tidbits to find. I mean, I know I've done a good job when somebody's like, where the hell did you find that out? (laughs) I think you like that. I think like secretly that's like your favorite thing ever. It is, it is, it is. Do you like lean in when you ask them these questions? (laughs) Uh, Well, I have the mic and the headphones. My producer doesn't like me to move too much because then I sort of go off mic. But I try to communicate as much as I can, you know, with my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. Be, be, like, I always thought, because I'm very much so like a talker, and uh, you, you would think that I would have like no problem do, doing it, but it's very hard sometimes when you're like asking people about, you know, obviously you've been doing 200 plus episodes, uh, 250 episodes and counting, right, of Design Matters? Oh, I don't even, yeah, it's... it's Something like that. Oh. It's a lot. <laughs> um no, but but to to ask people and to kind of have to go into their like LinkedIn and do you ever feel like that it's I feel like weird sometimes because I feel like I'm not like stalking but like in, in order to like research them thoroughly you need to you know like re- like read their books and like right now like I'm listening to your audio book I rewatched all all your um you know your, your talks and stuff online I love the Creative Morning one that was great that Thank was a you. home run that was a really Thank good you. one. Um, but, but do you ever get, like, where do you find the time to, to, re- you have so many different guests. Do you like thoroughly research all of them? Is that kind of part of the fun? Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's also, um, a big responsibility because people are giving up their time right. to talk to me. I want to come to the interview respecting who they are right. and really being able to ask questions that they haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ask. So, what are your biggest influences? Yeah. Or what, what music are you listening to right now, Debbie? Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to ask those kind of questions. I want to yeah. be able to ask questions based on what they've done and what they what they think, and ask them why they think certain things, not what they think, but why. Right. That's that's what I'm really interested in. So yeah, there's a little bit of a stalkerish quality to what I do, but. <laughs> I, I, I gotta show you. I have friends. I always like retweet your stuff. I'm like, this girl must think that I have no life. I'm just sitting here like no, fanboying all day. I don't think that at all. I, I adore you. I think you're you're wonderful, Thank and you. your your enthusiasm and your energy and passion is palpable. And Thank you. I, I think that that's what makes life worth living. If you're not like that, then what's the point? Yeah, for sure. I mean, not that people don't suffer from sadness and depression. I mean, I. Right. I have been very vocal about the fact that I suffered a very deep depression in the fall. Um, but I think that that also gives you a sense of how important it is to really cherish the, the times where you feel that really high passion and, and exuberance. Yeah. I, I'm at a, I'm at a weird, not take for granted. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm at a kind of a weird spot right now because I just uh, left my, um, job as, as a design director at a uh, e-commerce company and it was an amazing experience. I had worked with a great team and uh, I did that while going to college so that was kind of kind of wow. cra- yeah kind of crazy to do. I, I, uh, I took a semester off. We had uh, we had um, r- the day after I got promoted to design director um, I got called the next day and they said don't come into work and uh, there's we have a bit of an issue. I, I, I later found out that we had about like $300,000 worth of flooding damage 
And so, <laughs> yeah, so that was like day one, like, you know, hopping into management. But uh, it was a great experience. But now I'm, you know, graduating and I'm uh, freelancing and, and kind of going on this, you know, leap of faith kind of to, to, to go to be freelancing full time. And, and um, obviously when I'm not at school. But then, but then to go out into the design world and to, to have so many options, do you go in-house, do you, you know, do you stay branding, advertising, video, do I, you know, what do you want to do? And um, what, what would be your advice to somebody who's kind of um, standing with, a, with, you know, a bit of experience and kind of where I am now? I, I, on, the, on the one hand, it's the most exciting, exhilarating thing in the world to kind of to be able to go go anywhere but it's like the beginning i'm sitting at like the foot of my life and I, I i at times feel like you know where do you where do you go from here it's it's exciting and terrifying Terrible. all at the same time yeah yeah absolutely and i remember that feeling i remember the summer i graduated college and and i've written about it and looked both ways standing at the intersection of 6th avenue and bleecker street and sort of envisioning my future and feeling really scared about what I could and couldn't do. Most of what I thought I couldn't do, I look back on now and see it was entirely self-constructed. So I was limiting the possibilities of my life before I even considered them possibilities. So my advice to any person that is just graduating college is this. You have your whole life ahead of you. This is the time to experiment and this is the time to stretch all the notions of who you think you are and what you and what you think is possible. Don't limit what is possible in your life before you even consider if it's possible. Right. Push yourself to reach for more. If you have dreams, which I know you must, you seem like the kind of person <laughs> I'm a that dreamer. really. <laughs> has big plans. Mm -hmm. Live into those plans. Don't compromise. Don't settle. Don't give up. When you're in your 20s, the whole world is a possibility. Right. One can say that about any day in anyone's life at any age. Right. But when you're in your 20s, you have permission for that to be the case. Right. It's expected that that is the case. You are expected to experiment. You are expected to fail. It is absolutely, totally fine to not make it the first time around when you're in your 20s right. or the third time around or the fifth time around. The one thing that I would tell anybody in their 20s now is to realize that most people give up after the second attempt that fails. Right. 80% of the population of triers stop trying after the second attempt. So that means that if you try for the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time, there'll be a smaller pool of candidates and right. eventually Eventually, if you want it badly enough, you will make it happen. People think that they fail. What they do is give up. Right. And that is what is the failure. 
Right. It's only a failure if you accept defeat. Right. That's Otherwise, true. you're just trying. You just keep trying. Yeah, I, I do. I kept trying with this podcast, too. I was persistent. I was like, I'm you just going to keep sending it. She's going to do and it. <laughs> I was really impressed. And you also did it in a really nice way. You weren't overbearing or or sort of angry. You just yeah. were really kind and nice and funny and sweet. I always put the smiley faces to be unassuming. You know, and, and, and also try, I have this thing where I'll try on like different mediums. So I'll be like, oh, email, maybe sometimes on Twitter. But uh, this yeah, has been yeah. awesome. It, it's so crazy to kind of, and I've seen it um, a lot in, in, in my life where, um, where already I can kind of see just having like that stick to itiveness, I guess is the whatever, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, it, it was not too long ago that I, rem- I have this weird, vivid memory of being in my friend's driveway and staring. It was like one of the first days of spring. I was staring out the sunroof and I was listening to uh, your episode with Ron Burridge and Bur- Burridge, Burridge, one yeah, of them. Burridge. like yeah. courage, Burridge, Burridge, Burridge. Alright. <laughs> anyway, I was but I was listening to this uh to to this podcast and he, and he he talked about and I have to credit uh this story with kind of like the reason why I am the way I am is because uh he said about applying to Disney and about how he would just I think he the term he used was like carpet bomb them with and eventually they're just like, <laughs> All right, all right, you could work with us. What like I it was it was different than that. I'm paraphrasing here, but just kinda, you know, eventually and the same thing with you with uh with AIGA you kind of just kept submitting and and because the worst thing the worst thing that people can tell you is you know to f off that's it right that's it I and and it's so funny when you reach out to people and they kind of just like get back to you and you're just like wow I could do anything yeah I got Debbie Millman to come on my podcast this is the greatest thing and I felt the same way when I had Massimo Vignelli I called Massimo Vignelli at his studio expecting to get an assistant or a receptionist. It was about 6.30 in the evening and I called the main line and I asked to speak to Massimo and he said, speaking. Oh my God. Heart drops right there. Everything drops. <laughs> yeah. That's how I felt in the first 15 minutes of this podcast to be honest with you. But, oh, well, thank you. But now See? we're friends. Absolutely. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, real quick, but last thing. Um, I want to talk to you about um, my fiance would kill me if I didn't bring this up about uh, AIGA women's women's lead. Yeah, and uh, I saw I saw that Linda Decker is one of the people on the board. Is is that right? Yes, yes. That's the cr- true. crazy thing about her is that uh, one of my professors, um, uh, she she was a, a colleague of his, and uh, in my freshman year at school, um, he showed me her website. Because I showed I showed him my website and he's and I was like this is great right and he's like no this is great and it was Linda Decker and then it yeah, was kind of great. weird to see that uh, but anyway AIGA Women's Lead uh, yes I would like you to explain a little bit about that because I think it's very important well I think more than half of the membership of AIGA is women and so this is an opportunity for women that have been in the business for a long time to help other women that are just starting out with inspiration and ideas and opportunities and initiatives. And so it's a group of really cool ladies that are trying to make a difference with an AIGA for other women who want to make a difference in the design community and beyond. That's awesome. That's really cool. So I, I am on the uh, committee, the leadership committee, and we are all about 
inclusiveness and mentorship and opportunity. That's cool. It's really cool. It's very neat. You're always, you're always doing cool things. What, what is your, your, your next product? Are you doing anything right now in particular? What's going on in the world of Debbie Millman before we close <laughs> Well, I recently moved to a new place, so I've been having a lot of fun decorating and designing my home, which yeah. is a brand new medium for me. <laughs> I, like your fo- I like your foil t- tiles. They were nice. Thank you. Thank you. I decided <laughs> to do an homage to Invader. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. I did a mosaic that was based on the Invader art. Um, And then I'm also working on a new book, which is called Why You, How to Get a Job When You Graduate. And that's something that I'm hoping... Release it, release it by May. (laughs) (laughs) And it's uh, very much about... It's it's real-world, sort of in-your-face advice about what it takes to get the kind of job you really want when you leave school. Cool. That's awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to read that. I'll probably still be job hunting by then. So, uh, <laughs> no, you kidding. You're going to be running the world. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm trying. I'm trying. I will. Right, well, yeah. Debbie, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. This has been a dream come true. And, uh, that's a little yeah. overzealous to say dream come true, but it kind of is, you know, I wanted it to happen. I was hoping it would happen. I'll take it. So, thanks so much for being on Debbie. It's been uh, awesome. Thank you.